Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Toby Bonney. Toby is the director of Adamus, a Hove-based specialist in security and enterprise technology. Toby, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Toby. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. So if we sort of take that word leader and look at that on its own for a second to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it can be quite a complex thing that we don't often think about because we, we sort of take it for granted. But I think from my perspective, there's sort of two areas that define what I would consider leadership. So I think the first is more from a business perspective in as much as can you understand what the goal of the business is? Can you uh, simplify sometimes complex problems or situations and understand what needs to be done to sort of achieve the business goals that you've set out? And that's really a process of looking at what barriers you've got what's preventing you from achieving it and finding solutions. So there's a a lot of sort of of out-of-the-box thinking that goes into that and also measured risk-taking as well and having the confidence to do that. Um, I think the second perspective, and equally as important, is from a sort of human or social standpoint. So, you know, can you inspire and support the people uh, to enable them to perform? Um, And for that, you've got to be relatable. You've got to be empathetic. And your actions should be clearly uh, communicated and have a a clear motive and goal behind them. Um, And I think in terms of that as well, you've got to be able to understand the people that you're working with, the different personality types, what might motivate one person could be different for another. Um, So I think that's a really important thing is to connect with the people that are around you, know how to support them to get their support to achieve the business goals. I think if you tie those things together, from the business side and, and the social side, um, I think for me, that's what leadership is. Adaptable people management, as you say, there is incredibly um, important because you're absolutely right. Yeah. No one approach necessarily works for every personality. Everybody has something different that just makes them tick. Um, interestingly yeah. enough, you mentioned the word inspire as well, and people can look up to their leaders for inspiration in that sense. But when you're sort of at the helm and there's nobody above you, where do you look for inspiration? Well, for me personally, so I'm I'm one of two directors that um, run Adamus. So for me, I would look to my fellow director. Mm. Um, one of my downfalls might be to sometimes get too bogged down in the complicated nature of some of the situations that we see. And when I turn to my fellow director, he's very good at, at simplifying problems and situations. And sometimes you just need to remind yourself sort of strategically, what am I trying to achieve? Um and you do have to have inner strength um, to sort of weather that. As you say, a lot of the time for a lot of leaders, it, it can be quite lonely for them because they may lack that person in the organization that they look up to, that they get their strength from. So I think the ability to sort of find that inner strength um, and utilize what you do have, whether it be you know fellow peers, doesn't necessarily have to be someone that's more senior than you in the organization. It's just you need to find places to get your strength and your reassurance from. And that can take a lot of different shapes for many people. You know, it could be yoga for someone. It could be meditation. It could be, as I say, for me, it's talking to my fellow director about it. And at least there's two of us 
and we're, we're in it together and we share that responsibility. Um, so I think you can't rule out any area for, to get strength and to sort of give yourself reassurance. It's, um, mm. yeah, it's quite, a, quite an individual thing. Mm. And it seems a very collaborative and inclusive sort of leadership model that's in place um, in uh, that sense as well. And you talk about reassurance mm. as well. Incredibly important in the context of the here and now with the um, emergence of yeah. uh, COVID-19. Um, it's brought a great many challenges with it, but also a renewed and heightened focus on the importance of mental health and uh, well-being. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have been looking to their leaders to provide that vital reassurance. And it's been important, mm. especially if working remotely and being socially isolated to keep those communities communication channels open in that sense has adapting from a people management perspective then been a challenge in that sense or do you think it's something that you've adapted to quite well on the whole um i think being a small organization we're we're quite agile and and we've been able to adapt to that aspect um quite well so Mm. um to give some context we were already working from home before the current pandemic hit us so uh in terms of our day-to-day lives it was pretty much business as usual to a degree. Um, but I'm sure as you can imagine, sort of coming from a, a sales background, we're a sort of a sales consultancy business. Um, a lot of other companies and companies with sales functions, um, I think mental health is a big, a, perhaps a big issue for them in how to manage that, especially being a part of the business where you're the revenue generator and, and you can't afford to take time out a lot of the time because you're there to drive the business forward. So I think it's something within the sales arena that perhaps needs a little bit more focus um, in general, I'd say. Mental health is incredibly important in leadership, isn't it? Not just, of course, in terms yeah. of looking after your own, but also uh, that of your colleagues. And that's really been brought into the uh, the limelight yeah. now. Um, in sort of um, respect to that side of things, it can be so easy as a leader to kind of get drawn into that really hectic kind of working life so how easy yeah. actually do you find it to just sort of switch off when you need to um i think it's always on, on in the back of your mind isn't it when when you're running a business you never really truly switch off but you know a lot of the times when i'm not working I'm, I'm thinking about okay what are the next steps what can we do to improve the way that we're working or or make life a little bit easier for us and our clients um and that in itself is quite a rewarding process so it's almost uh, sort of a, a way of unwinding is by finding solutions to challenges or things that you worry about so for me if i'm worried about something for me to calm down about it i need to do something about it and i need to take action so um yeah, it does mean that you sometimes don't really switch off, but by dealing with the thing that's making you worried in the first place means you can take control. And I think a lot of people get um, or have mental health issues when they feel perhaps they lack control in certain areas. Mm. Um, so for me, it's really important to have have that stability um, and that, that say, you know, what am I doing? How are we running things? Am I happy with how we're running it? And if not, you, you have to make the change and you have to be adaptable. Um, and change it for the better. And this current pandemic has, of course, really brought into uh, question our working practices with regards to, of course, mm. sustainability in particular. Um, what sort yeah. of features from this lockdown period do you envision could end up being permanent parts of the way that we operate and do business in this country? Yeah, so I think um, obviously every organisation has had to change 
the way that they're working. I think the biggest one for everyone has been working from home and, and not being able to go into the office, not being able to sort of socialise with their colleagues, you know, face to face. So I think it's there'll be two things really. I think companies will perhaps actually realise that people can work from home and they can be productive. Um, and also from a financial aspect, I think some companies with very large offices in London may think, why are we paying so much for all of these business rates when actually we know that a, a home-based uh, workforce can work, but it's it's going to be a balancing act. But I think it's opened the doors up for um, organisations to be a little bit more flexible with how, you know, where and, and when employees are working. So hopefully it's sort of proven the case study for flexibility in terms of working from home. And with regard to sort of working from home, of course, you said that you were very much um, sort of working in that sense uh, before the pandemic came. And so it was a, a pretty much a seamless yeah. transition in a sense. How actually yeah. is it leading from a distance in that sense with everybody working separately and not having that sort of common space? Uh, it can be tough. You have to make a concerted effort to connect with whoever you're working with. And, and that's got to just be, you know, regular phone calls, regular meetings. And before lockdown, you know, we were meeting up with clients and, and we were having a drink with them and we were having face-to-face meetings with them because it is really important, especially in, in a sales environment, to connect with people. So I think maybe that's made it slightly more difficult in one sense, but I think in the other sense as well, we've all been connected by this pandemic. We've all been put into this situation uh, that we're not comfortable with and that we're not used to. And I think a lot of people are finding common ground because we're all suffering the same consequences at the moment. And so while the distance between us is physically increased, I think mentally it's brought a lot of people closer together because of that. And based upon your experience in running um, Adamus, um, if you had to give some advice perhaps to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is you you have to observe. um, You have to understand, you know, the people that you're working with. And it's a process of understanding where you can improve, where the downfalls are. But it's really about learning what is currently there and, and what you can do to improve upon that. You know, there's no point fixing something if it's not broken or just disrupting for the sake of disrupting. And it's understanding the people that are in your team, trying to get a gauge on what sort of personality type they are, what is motivating them. Uh, and really, it's it's getting to know them. You know, you've got to treat them as human beings. You've got to treat them as, as your peers. And you have to get to know them. And you have to be relatable. Um, and you have to show that, you know, you, you have an open door policy, you're always there. And it's just really about connecting with people because ultimately, if you're new to a business, you're going to learn more from the people that are already established within that business. So I think it's the social aspect is, is really important if you're new to a role as well. And thinking about the future now and what that is going to bring as we adjust to the uh, the new normal, just before we wrap things up on the programme today, Toby, I'm interested to understand what you envision for yourself and for Adamus and what you hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic. Sure. So, I mean, we, we've not been unaffected by the pandemic. So for us, it's about gaining stability. Um, we've sort of recently changed our business model to enable us to get more stability. You know, for a small company, it's always about can you maintain um, a consistent cash flow? So for us, 
that is going to be really important and putting stability into the business in terms of, you know, the numbers on your bank balance, but also the kind of companies that we're working with. So our focus is really on, okay, we need to be at a stage where we've got three or four really good clients that are reliable that we have long-term relationships with, which is, uh, I suppose you could say, a bit abnormal for the industry and, and the type of service that we're providing. So, yeah, 100% for us, it's stability, um, and that's what we're focused on at the moment. Certainly seems like cautious plans are there amid all of the um, uncertainty mm. for sure and um, yeah. you know it's one thing speculating on what the uh, the future might bring and it's a completely different thing seeing what happens in that time and looking back and reflecting and so given how informative this has been uh, Toby this afternoon I think it would be great to invite you back on the program in future just to catch up on what's gone on and see how things at Adamus are getting on at that stage. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I think it'd be fantastic because it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the program today. It's a, just a real shame we don't have more time. Otherwise, I'm sure we could discuss this long into the evening for certain. Um, uh, I'm sure we could. <laughs> it's, it's been fantastic, Toby. I really have enjoyed um, our discussion. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, do continue to take care and do stay safe because we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet. Indeed, I will and you. Likewise, Toby. I was speaking there to Toby Bonney, Director of Adamus in Hove. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various seats senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the 
the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths
strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public. 
who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning 
Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. 
Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.